0: I want to um, use Exodus 20 to look at questions 96 and 97, but I want to pause before we do that and and spend some time on question 98. This question specifically focuses on, on the use of images in the church building and in the church service as aids to teaching. At the heart of this question is the Reformers' disagreement with the Roman Catholic Church in particular uh, but also the Eastern Orthodox Church in their use of religious images and symbols and icons um, as a representation for God. And th- that's, the, that's the key phrase, as a representation of God. So the reason for the conflict is that if people connect to these images, even the image of the cross, for anything more than a reminder or a pointer to God, then they can stand in the way and even be a, a substitute for God. But the commandment isn't talking about banning all imagery, only images that symbolize God. And uh, I, I want to show you biblical evidence for this and help you uh, really break down what, what's prohibited and what's okay by looking at a couple examples in Exodus 25, um, in, in Exodus 32. The commandments come in Exodus 20, and then if you just flip forward a few chapters to Exodus 25, we see that God instructs the Israelites. This is just just after we get the Ten Commandments. God instructs the Israelites to build a tabernacle where they will worship and seek out God, okay? And the very first thing that God instructs them to build in this tabernacle is the Ark of the Covenant. And on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant... And by the way, the Ark of the Covenant is where they're going to place the, the, the tablets of the law in. On the cover of the Ark, in pure gold, okay, God instructs the Israelites to build a mercy seat or a place of atonement. And this is where God will come down and Moses can intercede or the high priest can intercede for the people. And they're, in, they're instructed to build two large... Statues of angels, cherubim, out of pure gold on the cover of this Ark of the Covenant to to, uh, sort of form this mercy seat or place of atonement. So two statues of angels made of pure gold at the center point of of the inner holies of holies. Now these statues do not break the second commandment. They're not idols that are, are, or images that are banned because they're just there to facilitate worship of God. They don't induce worship of, of themselves. But if you go seven more chapters into Exodus, from 25 to 32, you'll see that the Israelites can't wait for Moses up on Mount Horeb any longer. He's been up there for over a month and they're um, they're getting a little anxious. They want, to, they want to worship. And so they take all their earrings and jewelry, and they melt it down, and they throw it in the fire, and they craft this statue of pure gold, a golden calf, and they worship the golden calf. That is breaking the second commandment. So the pure gold cherubim do not represent God, but is imagery, imagery used to facilitate worship, but not to worship. The golden calf is not used to facilitate worship of God, but is used as an object of worship. You see the distinction between the two? Or did I make it more muddy? I think most, or maybe I should say the majority of church leaders today are in agreement that things like PowerPoint images and video clips used to convey the message of Scripture don't fit the same category of images that is banned or forbidden in question and answer 98 these are not images that represent god but images that are designed to help us understand and hear god's word better they're images that assist in worship but don't incline us to worship the image for example if we could see this next slide now when you see that this is a very evocative cartoon And uh, I don't think any of us here would say we have an inclination to worship that. Not at all. But however, if we're preaching on the text of Hebrews 10.24 that says this, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, this image could be a a powerful um, way to connect real life and that scripture passage. So that's how we see question and answer in 98. Um, if we can keep in mind the example of the uh, pure gold statues that are used in the worship service on the, really on the most h- highest sacred day of the, the, the Israelites' worship schedule, the Day of Atonement. Not breaking the second commandment. Golden calf, breaking the second commandment. So it takes some discernment. Let's move beyond that, and I really want to get into the meat of, of that second commandment, and we'll, we'll look at question 96 and 97 a little bit more as we springboard off of Exodus 20. We have um, four through six here, but I'm going to just read a- aloud verses one, two, and three so we, we have a little bit of the, the intro. I am, i sorry, and God spoke all these words, okay, these ten words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, commandment one. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. This is God's word. A quick word about the commandments. Do you ever notice when um, they're given? They're given after a relationship with God's people has been established. This is a huge overlooked principle here. Um, in in uh, verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. We are, God has been relating to his people for some time now, but, but not in a very specific way. He hasn't given them a lot of guidelines. He hasn't let his plan, he hasn't let many in on his plan, but they're in a, 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 a sort of a, a relationship with him. He's building from Abraham on. He's slowly deepening his relationship with his people. And then comes a period of 400 years of slavery. And after that time, God delivers them out of the hands of the Egyptians in a really powerful, really miraculous, really jaw-dropping way. And he, they, God performs these 10 plagues, these 10 miracles to cause Egyptians to let the Israelites go and worship God. And then does an an incredible miracle parts the red sea lets the israelites cross over the red sea to safety closes up the red sea the egyptians can't pursue them any any further so god has called his people out he has redeemed his people from slavery he is in a relationship with these guys now and then because he's in a relationship with these guys he gives them these 10 commandments The Ten Commandments are not conditions for a relationship. I can't stress this enough. God doesn't say, if you do these ten things, I will love you. If you do these ten things, I will forgive you. If you do these ten things, I will call you my own. No. God loves his people first. God forgives his people, redeems his people, calls them his own first. And then out of that relationship comes God's rules, God's guidelines. This is really important because I think it's human nature to want to manage and limit God. We have a tendency to fall back on legalism because legalism gives us leverage with God. Well, I've done those ten things, I haven't lied, murdered, I don't covet. And we can use legalism to say, God, I have held up my end of the bargain. Now give me what I'm asking for or protect me or give me this job interview or keep me from harm. And so we have to know up front that a relationship comes first. These Ten Commandments aren't a way to strong arm our way into God's favor. We're we're in a relationship with, with God we have the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection. So we have a full relationship with God through Christ. And keeping these Ten Commandments can't make our standing with God any better. So then we have the First Commandment, which the first two that really paired together, it's really hard to preach them separately. Um, but as we learned last week, that First Commandment is who are we supposed to worship? We're supposed to worship God and God alone. Now, in in um, this is a really new concept for the Israelites. Back in the the ancient Near East culture, there was polytheism everywhere. And in fact, I don't think there was one single example of a monotheistic people. There were many gods for many scenarios. And so God says, to "Put it in real." Street terms, I am your one-stop shop for divine intervention. I am the God of everything in your life. You're having problems with your finances. You're having problems with your family. You have fears. You're afraid of death. You need help work, the crops, the, the whatever. You come to me. You're going off to battle. You come to me. The first commandment talks about who we're supposed to worship. The second commandment talks about how we're supposed to worship. And really, in a nutshell, it's this. We're supposed to worship God with our everything. The second commandment, don't make any image and worship it. God is telling us how we should go about worshiping him. He's saying, don't dumb me down. Don't microsize me. Don't try to tame me or manage me or put me in a portable box. I am not an image. I am not a statue. I am not an icon. I'm the creator of the universe. An idol or an image back in the ancient Near East was designed to rep- that w- represent God and ultimately designed to give people special access to God. So let's say we were going out to battle. Well, we would grab our icon and we'd stuff it in the, ch- the lead chariot or the... or we bring it with us into battle. Well, we have God's protection because we have God with us, literally. Let's say we were trying to start our family. Well, we would go to the, the God of fertility. We wanted a f- um, full, full harvest, full crops. We'd go to the God of fertility. We wanted the sun to shine so that we could have a good harvest. Well, we'd go to the sun God. And so, in a way, this is another form of, it's, it's ancient Near Eastern legalism. We want to be able to get in touch with God. We want to be able to get God's favor. We want to be able to get God to help us, to support us. So it's human nature to, to create these things, to create these idols. But God says, No. Don't have any of that. I can't be minimized. You can't just take me out like a genie in the bottle and rub the lamp. I am the God of everything, everywhere. And you worship me on my terms, not on your terms. You don't just pull me out when you need me. I'm not the Hail Mary SOS you follow me. I'm your God. You're my people. Do we have idols in our day and time? Well, you know, I remember hearing this commandment preached on growing up a lot. And uh, it, was, it, w- it was often, you know, you can make sports your idol. You can make TV your idol. You can make alcohol your idol. You can make your family your idol. You can make your work your idol. Anything that you are going, that that you put your all into, and that you're sacrificing for, and that you seek your your happiness and your satisfaction for, is some things, are, are things that you worship, and therefore they can be idols. And I think there is a danger in that, but I find that in in day to day life, us us Christians, um, we uh, we like sports, but we don't love them that much. We, you know we uh we like work but we don't love work that much and so some of us sitting in these pews may have erected those things as idols but maybe not but i think if you look at the principle of the second commandment you'll see that even deeper there's a deeper principle at work and uh An idol can be a mindset. Let me explain this a little bit. I remember when I first started preaching every Sunday, I would fall in this rhythm of holiness. Um, This may sound crazy to y'all, but it's my true real-life experience. I I was, you know, preaching every week when you're not used to preaching every week is an overwhelming task. And so you're praying a lot and you're trusting God a lot. And then I, I found myself that on Friday and Saturday my Christian walk would become really squeaky clean, and I would sin a lot less. I would be a lot less selfish, and I'd be a lot more um, attuned to how I was behaving and how what my thinking was. Why? Because subconsciously, in, I really didn't, if you asked me this, I would say, no. This is only after introspection. that I found that I I, ha- I had this mindset playing in the background that, if I didn't sin on Friday and Saturday, I would, Sunday morning would turn out better for me. I don't know why I didn't think Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I, I didn't go off and sin on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday. But I made a, a, a specific, uh, there was a specific awareness that, boy, I was going out of my way to stay squeaky clean. This thing uh, pop, popped out when we first had our, our first um, child. And um, uh, when uh, Laura and I got married, uh, we waited a couple of years before we started trying to have kids, and then we started trying to have kids, and not- nothing happened, and um, three years into it, nothing happened, and so we decided, well, we should go to the doctor, and the doctor said, hey, you know what? You guys both have issues, and you probably won't be able to have kids on your own, and you should pursue in vitro fertilization, and so... Uh, we were like, eh, you know, we're not, even sh- we're not really settled yet. We're still, uh, just, we're still in school and whatnot. We haven't settled down. Let's not go that route. We'll just leave it in God's hands. And uh, eventually, actually, as soon as we bought our house, our first house, Laura became pregnant. And uh, I remember that as we got closer and closer to that due date, I remember this feeling like, I am striving here to be a better Christian. And in the back of my mind, there's this superstition that, like, that, you know, I don't want to sin because the birth of, of my child's coming up. God does not operate like that. That is legalism. That's breaking the second commandment. It's creating an idolatry out of, of a checklist of, of, of works Righteousness. I think more often than not, this is the form of breaking the second commandment that we could fall prey to as Christians. I think it's pretty evident and people will point out to us quickly if football is our idol or if work is our idol. But when it's a mindset where we're, we're taking the rules ahead of the relationship, it's subtle. No one's going to call us on the carpet for that, except for the Holy Spirit. So are we in danger of breaking the second commandment? You'll have to ask yourself that question. But I want to look at, the, the, in, in closing, the two, um, the blessings and the curses of, uh, if I could word it that way, of following or not following the second commandment. Let's look at verse 5. Um, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You know, I, I remember when I first read this and understood this, I thought, wow, that's harsh. So you mean if my dad breaks the commandment that me and my child and Possibly my grandchild is going to have to pay the punishment for, bear the the burden of their sin. This is unfair. And honestly, after living the Christian walk and growing in my relationship with Christ, I see two things that emerge when I contemplate the blessings and the curses that That God gives here—the blessing and the curse—and one I see is that whether we think it's fair or unfair, it's a true reality. I just heard the other day a story about a young woman who is really struggling to separate herself from her her past and present, her, and it's really a, a a family tree of of curse. Her her mom and dad were, uh, her her mother was abused, now her mother is an abuser, and she's abused, and she has to figure out, how is she going to break that cycle? I look at my own family tree. I remember when Laura and I were married, we had to do a genogram. A genogram is a family tree, but then you have to connect um, all the negative stuff, like alcoholism or depression or, you know... uh, I don't want to air out all my uh, family dirty laundry, but being from a, a, a stereotypical Irish family, there was some some uh, I could trace down that in my family tree there were bridge burners where relationships would become in conflict, bridges would be burnt and never repaired, and it was passing down the family line. So we had this we had these disconnected relatives that we never talked to because. You know, three generations ago, so and so got mad at so and so, and they burnt the bridge. That's a a good example of the generational curse. We saw alcoholism too. Very good, typical Irish Catholic, uh, you know, a good uh, Irish trait there. Alcoholism just wreaking havoc on my family tree. When Laura and I got married, we said we are reversing these curses. We're we're claiming the power that we have through Christ's death and resurrection, and we will not continue the bridge burning. We will not continue the alcoholism. We will not continue. It was this dominating uh, submission thing going on in in, uh, Laura's line. We will not continue that. So the one side, I see this reality at work, this blessing and curse reality at work for sure. But the other thing is it's reversible. And we have the benefit of Christ's sacrifice for our sins, where he pays the penalty for our sins and stops the generational sin cascade. When Jesus comes into the picture, he interrupts justice. And takes justice into his own hands and says, yeah, these guys here, they may be sinners, they may sin, but I have died for them. I have paid for their sins. And then if you look at the unbalanced, the, 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 the unbalance of the blessings and the curses. God says, Showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now that doesn't seem fair either. Showing love to a thousand generations. Three or four generations, a thousand generations. The second commandment. It doesn't give us an outdated command by an angry God. Rather, it gives us an extremely relevant command that will keep us from our own demise connects us to a personal non-legalistic relationship with our creator commandment one says who do you worship god alone commandment two says how do you worship Him? with your everything you don't set up an idol for you to control for you to gain leverage with god to, so you can make your own portable god That's why Jesus sums up the law this way. Who do you love? Love God. How do you love him? With all your heart, mind, soul, strength. If we do that, God promises his love to a thousand generations. Have you broken the Ten Commandments? I mean the the Second Commandment. If you do, have an advocate with the Father who is Christ Jesus.